Well, good morning, church. To those of you who are here in the room with me and uh, those joining on the live stream, uh, I confess a little bit I don't know where to look this morning, so forgive me if my eyes are a little bit all over the place. Um, But isn't it great that we can actually be together? Uh, And isn't it great that God's Word is just as alive and just as active, whether we're watching online or whether we're here in person this morning? And I'm really excited to be able to continue our journey through the book of Exodus um, as we near the end. I guess I should probably introduce myself. My name is Cameron. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Canterbury Gardens. Uh, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Signe. That's Signe, not Signa or Signe, just for those of you who need that. Um, And as most of you will know, we just had a beautiful daughter, uh, Nora. And one of the things I've been learning about uh, having a newborn that is both a blessing and, to be honest, a bit of a frustration uh, is that, you know, sometimes they get upset. Um, I'm sure parents here can testify to that. Sometimes that happens. Um, but, but sometimes I find it really frustrating in, in ways because you put them on the ground to kind of play with their toys and, and um, you try to just go and get something practical done around the house because there's never enough time to do all the things that need to be done. And, and you go start doing something, then all of a sudden they're crying and you, know, you go back, you shake a toy in front of their face and, and they calm down for a second and then you go away, start trying to get something done around the house and they cry again. And so you go, you change them or something, you put them back down, you go away, try to get something done and they cry again. You try all the things and then only to realize that what they actually wanted was you. They just wanted you to be there. They just wanted your presence. You see, to a newborn, your presence is their whole world. It's everything to them. Nothing else really matters. It's central to their whole life. And that is a blessing. But boy, sometimes I wish they were a little bit more independent. But today's passage that we come to is going to be picking up that theme of presence. It's really going to be the overarching point of this whole two chapters that we'll cover. And I hope you've realized that as we've journeyed through Exodus, that that this theme of presence is one of the the main themes that goes throughout Exodus. And and I guess not even only Exodus, but of the whole Bible. From from the very beginning in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and, and were sent away from the presence of God, the rest of the text is all about will God be able to be with his people again? Will the presence that was lost back in the garden be regained? And so we've seen that in Exodus, have we not? God has dramatically rescued his people. He's led them out of Egypt by his hand. He's led them by his presence in the cloud and the fire. He wants to be with his people. But we've seen issues with that, right? We remember not too long ago the the terrifying scene on the mountain where the mountain shook and the people were afraid and they couldn't come near God. And ultimately last week we saw the very reason for that. We saw that the reason God couldn't be with his people was because of their sin. That despite God's redemption, despite all that he had done for them, the people of Israel bowed down to the golden calf. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator That's why God couldn't be with them. And so last week we came face to face with the ugliness of humanity's sin. 
And I don't know if you realise, but last week's passage actually finished in a very unsettling place. We had Moses go up on the mountain and say, let me see if I can atone for your sin. And, and he says, God, block me out, blot me out of your book. And God says, no, I will blot out the one who sins against me. And then the final verse of chapter 32 just says this, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so we kind of pick up our text today wondering what, what's going to happen to these people? What's God going to do with this stiff-necked people? Why don't we look at this passage together? But before we do, let's pray. Father, we, we want to hear your words today. Uh, we want to, your word to speak into our hearts. So we just pray that through these two chapters in Exodus that you'll um, make your word alive to us. Help us to see... Um, the areas that need to change, and by our spirit work in our hearts. And as someone I've been listening to lately says, I pray that the people may hear a better sermon than the one I prepared by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So why don't we look together at Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 1. Now, you will need your Bibles with you today to look at the text. We'll be, we'll be spending quite a bit of time in it. There's a lot to get through. Um, so read with me Exodus chapter 33. If anyone needs a Bible, just pop up your hand and John can pass one around to you. So Exodus 33 uh, verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff Necked people. We'll stop there for the moment. So we see immediately that it's a pretty interesting start to this chapter, right? God tells the people to, to get up and to go, to go to the promised land. In fact, he says he's going to send an angel with them. He's going to drive out their enemies. They're going to inherit the land. But one problem, God won't be going with them. He'll still fulfill his promise, right? He, he'll still be faithful to bring them to the land like he said, but he's not going to go with them because of their sin, because they're a stiff-necked people and he may consume them on the way. Now, now maybe on the surface we would kind of think, well, this de deal doesn't sound that bad, right? I mean, they still get God's blessings, do they not? They, they get to go to the promised land, they, they still get protected by an angel. Their enemies get driven out. Doesn't sound that bad. But what's the issue? God won't be with them. And so that really brings us to our first point, that this text is going to show us the significance of God's presence. The significance of God's presence. You see, this is big, what Moses is saying here, what God is saying here, and we get a sense of that in the coming verses. Look at verse 4, how the people respond to these words. 
When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. And, And so you see the people of Israel, in response to this disastrous word, they mourn. You see, they're beginning to realize the consequences of their sin. They're beginning to see that their sin had lied to them. And so they take off their ornaments. In fact, God tells them to take off their ornaments. Now, I guess the question is why? Why does God tell them to take off their ornaments here? Well, I think it's a test of their repentance. It's a test of their repentance. Because there's a certain irony with these ornaments, right? (laughs) It was there in the golden calf incident last week. Because where did these ornaments actually come from? These these gold rings and gold earrings that they had, where did they come from? Well, if you remember back earlier in Exodus, that God actually promised that they would leave with the treasures of Egypt. Back in Exodus 12, 35, 36, it says this, And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for, so they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. And so you see, these blessings that God gave them, these gold rings, this wealth that he gave them, this was the very thing that they used to make the golden calf. Is that not a picture of what sin is? Taking God's blessings and worshipping them instead of the creator himself. And so you get this picture of a people that loved God's blessings more than God himself. And so God says, take these things off as a sign of obedience. Strip yourselves of the things that tempted you towards idolatry. And the people do it and they mourn because God's not with them anymore. He's not going with them. Or he says he's not going with them. Their sin is costly. And and we're going to see even more how costly it is. Look in verse 7 to 11. It kind of builds on, on just how devastating it is. Verse 7 says this, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent." So can you see what's going on here? This passage is trying to stress to us that there is now a distance between the people and God. 
I mean, look how many times verse 7 mentions that. It says that Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, and then again, far off from the camp. And then later in that verse, everyone would go out to the tent of meeting. And just one more reminder, which was outside of the camp. It's trying to show that as a result of their sin, God's presence had been somewhat removed from in the midst of the people to outside. Now, it's worth noting that this wasn't the tabernacle, This was obviously some structure that was in place until the tabernacle was actually built, but it signified God being in their midst. And this passage is trying to stress that God's presence wasn't there as a result of their sin. And then it contrasts this with Moses, who who was a friend of God, it says, who, who spoke to God face to face as if to a friend. And so what this section of text is trying to show Israel, it's a reminder to them of the effects of their sin and it's showing them what really matters. You see, Israel thought the blessings were better than God himself. And it's showing them they've got it all wrong. God is trying to test them here and show them that his presence is what makes all the difference. You see, I don't think God was actually going to stop being with his people here. But this is a test. He's trying to teach his people a lesson about what actually matters. Take off your ornaments. Take off these blessings that I have given and understand that it's my presence that is significant. He wants them to see that, to know that. And we see this beautifully put in verse 16. Look at verse 16. We'll come to it later as well. But Moses articulates exactly what God wants this people to know. He says in verse 16, when he's interceding for the people, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. You see, Moses recognizes this beautiful truth that it's not the blessings, it's not the material things they receive going out of Egypt, it's not even the fact that they're going to get to the promised land. It's God's presence that makes them distinct, nothing else. And if they lost God's presence, then everything else with that, even if they got to the promised land, even if their enemies were driven out, even if they had all this wealth, it would be worth nothing if God's presence wasn't with them. And so I think the obvious question that comes out of this passage for us is what matters most to us? The blessings of God or God himself? What do you see as the most distinct thing about you being a Christian? Is it God himself? The fact that he is with you? Or is it something else? You see, maybe you're a Christian here, listening or in this room, who would actually take that deal that God gave Moses? Who would actually say, you know, if God said to you, you can, you can get to heaven, you can, you know, I'll, I'll protect you in your life, I'll drive out your enemies, I'll, I'll guard you, but I just won't be with you. Maybe you would say, good, sounds like a great deal to me. But you see, this is a very dangerous position to be in because what you're saying to God is, God, I want your stuff and all that you give me, but I don't actually want you. You see, to be a Christian, the thing that makes us special, the thing that makes us distinct is that God is with 
us and we can be with God. Is that what matters to you? Is that what defines your relationship with God? Or perhaps, like Israel, you've begun to put your hope and trust in his blessings rather than the one who created you. Maybe you've started to put, you know, like we said last week, we don't have golden calves, but maybe it's in your kids. Blessing from God, right? Maybe it's in your wealth, maybe it's in your career, maybe it's in your studies. Maybe it's something else. Have we begun to worship the blessing rather than God himself? Or perhaps you're just a Christian who wants the benefits of being a Christian without God himself. Like, like I want to be blessed, I want to go to heaven, but God, take it or leave it. Is your Christian life characterized by the joy of being with God, the joy of daily being able to know his presence and live according to his presence? Or has it become something else? Parents, is this what you're teaching your children? Do your children know that the most significant thing about being a Christian is that God's with us? Or maybe they know all about the rules, maybe they know all about all these other things, but they don't know that what matters is that God is with us because of Christ. Is this what we're offering people in evangelism? Are we telling people that they can have be restored to their relationship with God? You see, the purpose of the gospel is not that we get saved, but that we get God and therefore we are saved. That's the purpose of our salvation, to be ushered back into the presence of God that was lost in the garden. Maybe there are blessings in your life that you need to actually rid yourself of. (laughs) Don't do that with your kids. But maybe there are things in your life that you need to rid yourselves of, just like Israel did. To refocus, to be reminded that God is what matters. God's presence is what makes us different. All right, well, let's keep moving. So we've seen the significance of God's presence, that he wants Israel to see that he's central in all that they do, that before they move on from this mountain, they need to know that it's God himself that matters, not his blessings. And now we're going to see this passage actually turn in a more hopeful direction. Look at verse 12. Keep reading with me. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
So we get another beautiful picture here of Moses interceding for the people of God again. You know, in the last chapter, we saw Moses interceding to turn God's wrath away, to, to see if he could atone for the people. And in this chapter, we see Moses interceding to keep God's presence with the people. And so that brings us to our second point, the steadfastness of God's presence through his intercessor. You know, you see here that Moses' concern is that God will be with his people. But also, you saw that Moses wants to know who God is. He wants to know who is the one who's going with them. But another thing you'll recognize is that what Moses does in this interceding is he constantly speaks of the promises of God to God. He reminds him time and time again, this is what you've said. This is what you've said. Now do this. And amazingly, God listens to Moses and he says, I will go with the people. Now, I think whenever we come like, to passages like this, we need to be reminded that, that God isn't just changing his mind here. We know clearly in the Bible that God doesn't change his mind like that. But I think more what we want to see here is that, as we mentioned earlier, that God is testing his people, but he's also pointing forward to a, to a reality and a future reality that the people of God need someone to intercede for them. They need someone to intercede for them. But at the same time, we need to take this passage at face value that it's showing the serious offense of sin to God's presence and the need for an intercessor for the people of God. That's what this section would have brought home to the people of Israel, that their sin was costly and yet because of Moses' intercession, God's presence would not leave them and he would continue to go. And you know, that same reality is true for us today. We need someone to intercede for us. We as the people of God need someone to intercede for us. But as we've seen time and time again through Exodus, we need someone greater than Moses. Because that would have been the hard part for the people of God, people of Israel, right? They would have read this passage, they would have seen Moses graciously interceding for them, for them and God listening to Moses. And yet when they read this hundreds of years later, where was Moses? In the ground, dead. They would have seen their need for this intercessor, but they wouldn't have seen the reality of it realized. But praise God that we do see the reality of this today. That we have someone to intercede for us. But do you know what? It hasn't changed that our sin is still an offense to the presence of God. In fact, in some ways, our sin grieves God even more closely because we have his very presence within us. And so the question that kind of hangs over this section, can our sin also threaten God's presence to leave us? Can our sin make God say that he's no longer going to go with us? Well, the answer is clearly no from this passage. Because you see, Moses succeeds in interceding here for the people of God, in enabling God's presence to continue with the people despite the greatness of their sin and despite, as we have seen, Moses' own sin and infallibility. He reminds God of his work and God says that he will stay with the people. And so this passage points us towards Christ who intercedes for us today. 
But I wonder, as a Christian here this morning, whether you've actually thought much about Jesus as your intercessor. I'm sure you've read it in the Bible and I'm sure you've thought, well, it's a nice thing, Jesus is interceding for me. But what does it actually mean? Because I think as Christians, we think a lot about what Christ has done in the past, his death and resurrection. We think a lot about Christ coming back in the future, but we don't actually think a lot about what Christ is doing now. And the Bible's answer to that question is that he is interceding for his people. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 says that this is actually the reason that God is able to save you. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the reason God will save you to the uttermost. Surprisingly, it doesn't say because of his death and resurrection, although we know that's true. It emphasizes that because Christ always lives to intercede, that today, as you sit here, as you watch, Jesus is interceding for you if you belong to Christ. But what does it actually mean? Well, I read something recently by a guy named Dane Ortland, and he puts it like this to, to explain what Jesus' intercession is actually doing. He says this, intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. The atonement, or, or Jesus' death for our sins, accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment moment application of that atoning work. You see, Christ is proclaiming his work over and over again before the Father. It is finished. I've covered them. Their sins are forgiven. Time and time again, every single day of your life as a believer, this is what Christ is doing before the Father. He's applying the work of the gospel to you, reminding the Father, calling God to attention to his promises. You see, this is why you can't lose God's spirit. You see that here, because if Moses, who was a human who dies with his own sin, could intercede for the people of Israel, this sinful calf-worshipping Israel, and God would listen and his presence remain, then how much more will God listen to Christ, his beloved son, who was sinless, who always lives to intercede for us, who day by day stands before the Father in our own idolatry and says it's covered, it's done, this is why our sin will never cause God's spirit to depart. Despite our re rebellion, he lives to intercede. Let that be an encouragement to your hearts that God's spirit, God's presence is steadfast because of his intercessor. All right, well, we'll keep moving. We've seen the significance of God's presence, more significant than the blessings. He is what matters. We've seen the steadfastness of God's presence, even to the people of Israel through Moses who intercedes for them. And now we need to pick up the pace because you're probably wondering, 25 minutes in, we still haven't finished chapter 33 and we've got all of chapter 34 to go. Don't worry, we're going to speed up dramatically and we're going to take really a helicopter view of the last remaining verses. So don't worry, we'll be finished soon. So, but read with me as we go, keep going, and we're going to see that this passage now turns its attention to a new topic of, well, not a new topic, it's related, but the topic of God's glory. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you, and will proclaim uh, you my name, the Lord. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, this is an interesting passage, which could be a sermon in and of itself, but, so we won't actually cover it in detail. But notice here that Moses asked to see God's glory and God responds with saying that he'll let all his goodness pass before him, that he'll be gracious to whom he'll be gracious, he'll be merciful to whom he'll be merciful. So what he's saying is that God's glory is tied and wrapped up in who he is. It's tied to his character. That's what it means to see God's glory. Because sometimes we have this really, I guess, uh, vague idea of what God's glory means. But, but God here says that he's going to let his goodness pass. And it's all tied up in his character. But also notice in that last verse that there is a limit to what Moses can see. He can't behold the face of God. No human can see the fullness of God and all that he is. But let's keep going. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourselves there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So we see here what we've already seen in some ways, God renewing the covenant, being gracious to his people. But notice here again the emphasis on God's character, God's glory. It's all about who he is. All right, let's, re- let's read the remaining verses here. Look back at verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11, observe what I commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jubasites. Take 
care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their eshirim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice." And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. And then we're going to jump down to verse 27, because in between that, it's kind of rehashing the commands that we saw earlier. Verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face." Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So what are the main things to notice here? But we saw that God's being gracious. He's renewing the covenant with his people. He reminds again of his character and his glory. He gives the commands. And then we finish with this really, to be honest, strange passage about Moses' glowing face in verses 29 to 35. So what's with that? Well, I think the key to this chapter is to notice the differences in God's re-establishment of this covenant compared to last time. What does this passage emphasise that wasn't emphasised last time? And so what's different? Well, you'll notice here that this passage spends a lot of time on God's glorious character and presence, connecting back to chapter 33, which was all about his presence. So it's continuing on from that. Secondly, notice that this, is, this text has a big chunk about Israel going into the land and being careful that they do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. So you see, it's actually foreshadowing their sin. It's foreshadowing their disobedience. Remember the people that would have been reading this text in that position. It's foreshadowing what they were actually going to do wrong. And finally, notice that this passage and this section that's been all about God's presence and his glory, finishes with a scene where Israel cannot even look on the face of Moses. Although God's presence has been restored, there's something missing. God's people couldn't even look upon his servant Moses. 
And so that brings us to our final point, the glory of God's presence in an inadequate covenant. You see, what we see here is that this covenant that God is making, even in its giving here, is foreshadowing its failing. You see that, right? Because how many times was this going to happen? We know that Israel are going to sin when they come to the land. They don't want to go in. We know that Israel are going to sin when they're in the land. They don't drive out the nations. They make covenants with the nations. They sin like the nations. Was God just going to keep going up the mountain and meeting with someone and giving them the covenant over and over and over and over again? No. It wasn't going to happen like that. And so this passage is actually showing and foreshadowing for Israel the inadequacy of this covenant. And it's inadequate in one primary way, that the people couldn't be obedient to God. The people couldn't be obedient to God because they couldn't behold his glory. They couldn't see all that God was in all his incredible character. They couldn't be like Moses and see the goodness of God and his mercy and grace pass before him. It foreshadows their disobedience and it points forward to something better. They couldn't behold his presence, and his presence couldn't be with them completely. And so despite God being gracious to his people here, and reaffirming his presence through the re-establishment of this covenant, all throughout is this reminder, it can't be all that there is. This can't be what it's like. We need something more. And praise God that today we know that We know the reality. We know that there is something more. That this truth has been revealed to us, that we are under a new covenant brought about by Christ's death and resurrection for our sin. You see, not only have we been made perfect, we talk about that a lot, not only have we been justified, but it's actually even more different than that. And really, the meaning of this section for us is made perfectly clear for us in the New Testament. Flip with me to 2 Corinthians 3. And we'll finish off for today. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12 to 18 says this. It's talking about this exact section that we've just read. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you see that we actually are able to do what the Israelites could not do. We are actually able to behold the glory of God. The veil has been removed. We've we've understood that the old covenant wasn't able to enable us to behold God's glory. In fact, we have his presence with us, in us, and we can behold his glory in a way that Israel never could. Notice here that God's presence is the key to our transformation. 
both in our beholding of all his goodness and all his glory and in the fact that his spirit lives in us to transform us and propel us to obedience. You know, as much as we love to emphasize, and I think sometimes we can do this too much, we love to emphasize that we're still sinners, we love to emphasize that we've also been justified and all those things, but notice that one of the big distinguishing factors between the old covenant and the new covenant is that actually we can be obedient to God through His Spirit in us. We can actually produce the fruit of the Spirit. We can actually be transformed. We're actually being transformed day by day into His image. That's the, one of the biggest differences between Old Covenant and New Covenant. We have Him living in us and we can hold His glory outwardly as well. And so I think the simple question, and it's been right through this passage... Is our, our Christian lives dependent upon God's presence from beginning to end? Because that's what these two chapters are about. It's God's presence that matters from beginning to end. Chapter 33 was all about him being central and, and his presence being significant. It showed us that his presence had to be steadfast and, and it shows that actually his glory, his glorious presence is key to our transformation this is what the Christian life is about. And I guess the questions for us to consider are, are our walk centered around that? Like, do we actually want God? Do we actually want to be with God? To behold His glory? What does it look like for you each day to behold God's glory? And to know that His Spirit is at work within you to transform you to be more like Christ. How can you do that each day? What does it look like to behold His character and His goodness before you? Because that's what relationship with God is all about. And without it, we could have heaven, we could have protection, we could have material wealth, but none of it matters if we don't have God's presence. Let these passages be a reminder to us not to be distracted, not to be distracted by the blessings that God gives us graciously. Coronavirus has been a reminder to, that, to us of that, has it not? It's threatened some of these things that we hold on to too tightly. Let those things not be a distraction from us beholding God's glory from us focusing on His presence, that that's the reason we are transformed, that's the reason that we can be like Him. It's about His presence from start to finish. His presence is significant, it's steadfast through Christ's intercession, and it's glorious and leads to our transformation. Let's pray. Father, we um, confess to the fact that we, like Israel, can be distracted by the blessings you've given us. Lord, we live in a country that has so much material wealth, so much more than the rest of the world, and we can easily start worshipping these things, Lord. We can easily start um, focusing more on these things than you yourself, Lord. As we, as we heard in the song that we sung before, 
that we actually need to behold you, to turn our eyes to you, that that's the job that we have each day to do, to rest in beholding you and and trusting in your presence within us and knowing that Christ is interceding on our behalf, applying that amazing work of his death and resurrection time and time again. Lord, help us as a church to be a church that's known to be dependent upon you, to be a church that's known for beholding you, to be a church that's known as being bold and sharing you with others. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. Help us to see the sin in our lives that we need to change by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.